In this episode, our guest is Ryan Dean, CEO of RD Content. A business focused on storytelling, this should be an interesting conversation with someone whose vision is to bring ideas to life. RD Content is London's fastest growing creative production agency with international expansion high on the agenda. The business is an award-winning video content agency based in London, UAE, Singapore and New York. Spend time on their website and you will find yourself watching eye-catching content for clients such as Williams Formula One, Barber, Angry Birds, Qatar Airways, Google, Vodafone and many more. So Ryan, thank you for joining us on the, the podcast today. Um, you started the business in 2009 in fairly humble surroundings. Just talk to our listeners a little bit around that first day when you walked in and you set up the business to where you are today. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. Well, uh, firstly, thanks for having me on the show. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. We did start in fairly humble surroundings. Started in a bedroom uh, in Clapham in South London. Um, Prior to that, I'd been a journalist while I was at university. I'd always known I wanted to be in and around the world of video games and film and technology. And uh, I'd uh, ended up leaving uni and getting a job as a technology journalist. Right. Did that for about six months. And then I got, uh, met someone from the BBC who invited me to join a production company, go and work on a pilot as a, uh, as a presenter for a TV pilot about video games. And couple of years working there, I, I realized that um, I loved uh, the, the filmmaking video content creation world. And um, and they've made me the head of viral videos, which at the time was sort of a fledgling idea around marketing. How, how do we use YouTube or well, effectively mainly YouTube to uh, to to share communications to, to what would have been a viral video about them, right? Well, Huh, what would be a viral video? Well, I, I actually, you know what? I'll jump into the first one that w- that we made for a client. So I, I I got asked to pitch the NHS, um, and they were trying to promote a message about teenage pregnancy. Okay. So the video that we we pitched is something that up to that point you'd never imagine the NHS would pay for. It was essentially shot on a mobile phone. It looked like a fight in a school playing field. Uh, so a bunch of kids, arms locked. Don't know if you remember the fights when you were at school. Uh, what they were like? <laughs> fight, fight, fight. The kids are running over kids filming and when you get to the fight and they're in there actually what you see is a girl on the ground she's screaming a young girl maybe 13 years old camera moves around moves around moves around before you know it you're at the you're you're at down by her legs and you see for a split second a baby's head emerging And, and the video was released with no branding nothing on it on youtube hit a million views in in sort of two days and then the NHS came out and said, yep, yeah, we produced this to try and raise awareness around uh, teenage pregnancy. It went everywhere. It was on Good Morning America. It was on BBC News. It was like this whole revolutionary idea. And, and viral then was people actively emailing and sharing the link, you know, probably logging forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Forwarding it on. So um, it was off the back of that. Really, the business began. So the NHS came back to me and they said, we want you to do that again, but for sexual health. Um, and we, we want you to do it, Ryan. We want you to do it. Uh, so go set up a company and we'll hire your company. And that's how I got the business started. Um, and then the journey, I mean, really humble beginnings. It was me in a bedroom. I got this money paid into my account, which I remember seeing like appear on the bank balance. And I was 22 or 23 years old and suddenly saw like the amount of zeros in my bank balance 
being bigger than I'd ever seen before. And, and, and before them or after them. <laughs> yeah, before them. It was, yeah, it's 15,000 uh, pounds was the budget. And I remember hitting my bank account and going, I'll never need another penny again. I, I'm essentially rich beyond my wildest dreams. I, I basically, I, I could do whatever I want. And obviously, you know, as well as I do, uh, that that's sort of quite a foolish, foolish approach. The money ran out in six months and and suddenly we were back to square one. And um, yeah, really, I got lucky in that I, I won a round the world project with about five days to go before I was going to throw it all in. I, I was really close to giving it all up. And uh, I was sort of, you know, calling family, calling friends, going, yeah, this hasn't worked out. It's not going to work. And then with five days left, um, literally me going, there's nothing left. But a phone call and it was the Bacardi family saying we need a director and a producer to go around the world, literally all over the world, filming about the history of our um, our brand, our cocktails. And uh, I said, you know, I have to just check. I'll see if the diary lets me. <laughs> Let me just see if I can fit this in. Yeah. And anyway, that was not only an amazing moment and a lucky moment. And I think one of the things that your listeners, you know, should should hear from me certainly is luck is a huge part to play in growing any business. That was a lucky moment because it had come two weeks later, I'd have probably had to take in another job and I'd have been out of it. Um, yeah, and 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 then when that money came in, I I I, I said I'm doing this differently. I got myself an office in Shoreditch. I started. I hired someone. And I was, I said, we're going to take this super seriously. I went after clients way more aggressively. We we quickly picked up Bentley, Aston Martin, Alfa Romeo in the car space. And we won a bunch of others. Slowly, slowly, the, the ball began to roll down the hill very slowly. So Ryan, uh, just touch on some of those sort of client wins then. At that stage, you've probably got... Um, no disrespect, you've probably got no credentials in the back pocket. Obviously, you've worked on that, that, that content you spoke about the NHS. But how, how, how did you manage to sell you, your service, into such esteemed brand names? Yeah, so I went into the, the mistake I made in the first instance is I got that that job and I stayed in my bedroom. The second time round, in my sort of second coming, I went into an office and I made sure that not a night went by, not a day went by without me going out talking to anyone and everyone in and around Shoreditch being a very creative space. Of course. And I said, this is what I do. I'm willing to come up with ideas for you. I've got great ideas. You know, YouTube's really important. I think we should be doing more content on that channel. And I had a receptive audience as well. People were internally within these big organizations, marketing departments were going, I think we need to be doing something on YouTube. Do you know anyone who specializes in producing for that channel? Not the old producers, but like new people. So it was like the right idea at the right time, if that makes sense. And yeah. I, I had some open doors and I, we did some pretty cool, uh, cool ideas. Like um, for Alfa Romeo, we did, we pitched an idea of building their logo out of 3,000 water balloons, huge water balloons, took three days to build, and then drive a car in slow-mo, smashing all the water balloons, and, and then making it into an online game where if you chose the right water balloon that survived being hit in slow-mo, you'd uh, you'd win a car. So that kind of stuff, uh, people, they would hear the idea and they go, can you pull this off for like 40 grand? And I said, yeah, yeah, we can pull it off. And then we go back in the other room and I go, start calling everyone I knew to go, Let's, how are we gonna do this? Like, does anyone know how to blow up water balloons? And then the company slowly, slowly, like kind of got more consistent work. By 2012, after three years, I felt confident enough to hire someone full time on minimum wage, or possibly even just below minimum wage. But it, 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 anyway, it was it was. So you're uh, still solo at this point, even though you've landed these mega contracts. Yeah, because I was just outsourcing, freelancing, yeah. trying to blend. But actually, my my idea, my point of difference with the rest of the industry was around. How can we do this in a way that isn't just a load of mercenary freelancers where the individuals who are producing it are going for lunch in Soho House, 
have no real like base anywhere. They're just middlemen, right? I was like, how can we do this differently? So we took all the money, or I took all the money with my one employee or my two employees, right? And I said, we're going to invest the whole lot into equipment. We're going to get bigger facilities. We're going to we're going to we're going to start employing people. And so where others might have taken money off the table, I just plowed everything back in. And I did that for maybe the next six six years, really, up to 2018. Mm-hmm. Just plowed in, plowed in, return, return. And uh, you know, the journey has has been sort of. Uh, just a very slow one, not like a typical growth company. It's been make profits, reinvest and grow. And um, I think that's a kind of uh, it's become more fashionable lately, that that idea uh, versus, you know, take loads of debt, spend it irrespective of whether you make profits, just grow the top line. My view has always been let's make sure we've got a solid bottom line and then let the top line be, be grown organically. Uh, let's not sort of pump up the numbers with loads of cheap money or 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 whatever. Um, and that and that means that your snowball doesn't grow so fast at the beginning as it comes down the hill. But as it goes, it gets faster and faster and faster. And and so now we're well over 100 full timers. Um, mm-hmm. We have film studios that some of the best and largest film studios in London um, that we built ourselves. And we have offices in around the world. So uh, it's been it's been a fun journey. I think the one critical key turning point that that everyone might be interested cool. in hearing is in 2014, up to 2014, the vast majority of our revenue was driven by other ad agencies. So we go to a BBH or a Saatchi's and Saatchi's and, and they'd say, well, we've got this client LinkedIn or whoever it might be. We want you to white label and produce all the work for us. And okay. we're going to look after the client. 100% of our revenue pretty much came from that that way of winning so we would be going around the ad agency saying hey can we kind of effectively do the work on your behalf um and in 2014 we decided we were going to go after our first major client direct in a retained for a retainer and that was williams formula one um we're up against nine other big agencies um and obviously we won it i'm pleased to say we're still working for them uh now um and within i'd say six months every single agency 100 percent of all of our revenue um was gone from the ad agency world like all of it was gone they all stopped working with us pretty much overnight once they realized we were talking to our two clients directly once they saw that we had direct relationships they all pretty much stopped working with us and um and that was quite scary but the business then began to grow and it grew far far better and far stronger after that so so that was sort of probably the biggest really big turning point i think for the for the for the 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 shape of the businesses that is owning those relationships okay so then help me a little bit then so what's the sales pitch pre that then so the sales pitch obviously to the ad agencies etc to the creatives and how do you sort of position yourself as you know the friendly guys that aren't going to take their breakfast and then what how does the pitch change then when you're talking to the actual corporates then in terms of saying actually why us so when we were talking to the ad agencies we were saying what are you doing currently and they'd say well we're going to one of the big production companies they got a big director Everything is outsourced. You bring it all in. Uh, Our approach, even by 2014, was we already had edit suites in Covent Garden that we were were invested in. We had already a a team of around about 10 or 12 permanent editors and camera operators. So the the pitch was we can deliver you the same quality or or even better quality, more dedication, more volume of work, um, but without the top line price of having a Ridley Scott attached to the job, right? And actually, more often than not, you don't need Ridley Scott because this isn't 1984 and we're not running like 
a hundred million dollar media campaign in cinemas globally, right? That's just not happening. Our content's being watched briefly, but so we need lots of it and we need to be able to go. So that was the pitch of the ad agencies and they got it straight away. They're like, this is great. We're charging LinkedIn half a million pounds and we pay you 50,000 pounds and we make 450 and you do all the work, pretty much. This is like the best business. Yeah, ever. of a sign. So the pitch afterwards was go to the clients direct and say, the ad agency isn't really offering you loads of value here. Like once you've got through the top level strategic thought of just do it for Nike, yeah. everything thereafter, you need a machine that can turn out the content that has invested in the studios, invested in the post-production facilities, has the staff on payroll. They're not just a bunch of mercenary ghosts. You need them as a team. You need that type of business. And they're quite hard businesses to build. They take quite a long time to build. And the ad agencies are, you know, uh, are not best suited to do that because it's not really their their world. And that has turned into uh, being quite a, a well-received pitch. So most clients, when they hear about what we do, are really, really interested in inviting us in to talk through how we might uh, deliver their workload for them versus going through their advertising agency. Fascinating, thank you. So you touched on YouTube before, and that sort of leads us into um, social media, etc. So talk to us around how how the social media landscape has changed, whether or not that's during your time, and how has that sort of given rise to what I describe as sort of well, the, the uh, modern agency, as it were? I think the overwhelming drive has been um, has uh, has changed from I want to deliver a load of. Firstly, it started with like maybe something that can go on YouTube, right? Just yeah. Isn't it amazing? In 2007, I, I can put whatever I want online. I don't have to wait for ITV or whoever. That quickly evolved into just get me loads of views. Views are the only metric that count. And then that evolved into get me engagements. <laughs> and then that evolved into, uh, you know, turn us into a trend setting, uh, you know, a trending campaign. Give, give us a trending campaign. We want to be the next whatever it is, whatever dance it might be or whatever. I think in terms of how things have really changed, uh, the biggest single change has been the speed at which content moves through the system. Okay. So even sort of 2013, 2014, you could create a great piece of content. It would live primarily on YouTube as the place where people search and they go to that. Now the overwhelming majority of video content consumed is on TikTok, Instagram Reels, obviously on YouTube as well, of course, but um, the the speed at which consumption uh, happens means that for brands in particular, it's as much about creating enough volume to maintain the algorithm's interest in your brand's position as it is about creating that one big amazing hit. You know, if you see that amazing thing you've seen on TikTok, and then you swipe past it, and then you're trying to find it, like trying to find it is like trying to find a needle in a haystack, right? It it just doesn't. It, it's not how the platform is is really geared up to work. It's just trying to keep your eyeballs addicted to the screen as you swipe through it. Um, and as a producer for brands, you know you have to adapt how you work uh, to, to accommodate that that change in behavior. Of course, there's still the demand for YouTube, second biggest search engine in the world, and people use that to kind of work out how things work and want to see their see a product. But so have you yeah. so have you seen a shift in that? So it's interesting. So TikTok that fast burn through it youtube now becoming more of a a dwell sort of platform where people are quite happy to spend however long five ten half an hour consuming content whereas your tiktok your instagram your reels for example is very much a case of just you know, 30 seconds 15 seconds potentially yeah i think tiktok's a really interesting platform it's not worked 
that well, I think, for many brands. I think a lot of brands, uh, branded content on TikTok, uh, the platform is designed to give you short, sharp dopamine hits through entertainment. And the entertainment will fall under funny, sexy, novel. And by novel, I mean shocking or uh, it it really, it, it, it isn't from a brand point of view, the brand really, really needs to often contort itself completely to try to have any relevance on TikTok. And I, and I mean, I'm not up to date on their latest numbers, but I don't believe commercially it's proving anywhere near as big a hit as I think people might have expected it, it would. Yeah, it really uh, that, yeah. And that's because, you know, advertising always is a bit of an interruption, but but as a platform, it's really, really overwhelmingly anti-advertising in many ways. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm sure this will change. Uh, you know, brands mature, uh, sorry, platforms mature and they change and they adapt. Uh, and ultimately it won't exist if it can't be commercially viable, right? So at some point uh, they've got to make money one way or another, whether that's the Elon Musk subscriber pay pay a fee or whether that's, um, um, or whether that's, through advertising, which is obviously this, the, the tried and tested model, one way or another it has to make money. I think YouTube, yeah, absolutely. We we have no issue with our clients producing longer form content to live on YouTube, 100%. And people will go there and they will engage and they will they will sit because they're seeking the content out more often than not. They're, they're, they're certainly um, when you're, now, now the issue is YouTube, Meta, TikTok, to a certain extent, there's an effort to cannibalize each other's service, right? So YouTube are obviously putting huge amount behind their 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 sort of rival version to TikTok, and and uh, Instagram effectively has completely copied it, which is obviously you know a tried and tested ta- tactic from Zuckerberg. So uh, and and you know we haven't even mentioned Snapchat or really Twitter or 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 LinkedIn or any other social platform because I mean we could spend all day talking about it. So. So yeah, long and short of it is that um, we're absolutely we see we have a very different approach and strategic thinking for all of these platforms when it comes to our creative process. Um, we have one central, maybe one central idea, and then spinning off of it all the different bits of content that might exist for each of those platforms. Okay, thank you. When we uh, when we first spoke, something that that jumped out of the conversation that I had with you was that. You're extremely passionate about the um, the creative skills and filmmaking abilities of the UK. Just explain for our listeners and just repeat for me, what what is it in your opinion anyway? What is it about the UK that makes it such a strong place to work for creatives? Yeah, I think we have a great uh, cultural history of storytelling here in the UK in all forms of uh, creative medium. So whether that's film, whether that's music, art, theatre, literature, we have a long legacy. I mean, going back to Chaucer or Shakespeare, right? It's 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 ingrained in in uh, UK culture, and we have an outsized impact here in the UK to the rest of the world. And without turning this into a history lesson, who knows why our cultural impact, but almost certainly linked to, you know, the the uh, the expansion of British Empire over all of those years, and the fact that English language is is preeminent globally. So um, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that we we have a um, you know, one of the things the government has done right and done well over the years has been supporting the creative industries. They put some extremely good strategic tax breaks in place for uh, the film, uh, video games industry. And you see the ripple effect into the world of music videos, commercials and other th- areas because of that. I think we're also geographically in a brilliant place. 
you know, it doesn't take that long to get to the United States. We can get to Asia and Europe and the Middle East and Africa very quickly from, from London. It's extremely well connected. Um, and, and so when you put all of those things together um, and, and the legacy of creativity within London, particularly and the concentration of talent here, that's why you've got such a, an exciting place uh, for, for the world of film and uh, animation, uh, television um, and video games in particular. Keep on London then. So your your new offices or um, the relatively new offices in London have a big focus on sustainability. What was behind that that drive? And additionally, how challenging was it when you decided to come up with the strategy of making or having such a sustainable um, office location and and building? How how easy was it to stay within those objectives? I think you were referring to the film studios, right? Not Correct, the yeah, sorry, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the film so studios, yeah. So in 2020, uh, yeah, 2020, we decided that building film studios, beginning of 2020, end of 2019, was the right thing for us. We're struggling to find film studio space to work in in London. And this is all to do with the fact that Disney took a 10-year lease in Pinewood, Netflix, yeah. 10-year lease in Shepparton. They wiped out loads of studio space. We couldn't find anywhere. So we set about finding the perfect location in London. Uh, we found it in 2021, and we took a lease on a site in Park Royal. Um, uh, at the end of 2021, we set up a construction company with the idea and the objective to build not only the best sound stages in London for film and advertising and rehearsal spaces, but also the most sustainable. Um, so our film studios are covered in solar panels. They have zero carbon uh, energy throughout the entire site. We have water harvesting on site for all of the bathrooms and toilets. We have um, uh, and green initiatives in our gardens to promote um, insects and wildlife in, in the area. We have electric charging vehicles and and some and many other things that that make the studios stand out in the world of sustainability. And there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, because I'm passionate about it. I have young children. Um, I want this planet to be here, not just for my children, but for my children's children, children's children, and so on. And it's clear that we're at a tipping point if we don't do something about it. Um, now, then that might not be a future. There might not be a future for them. Clearly, we're not going to overnight all just stop using carbon, right? It's just not going to happen. But what we wanted to do is be an example of how a new idea of how a film studio could operate could exist. Many of the film studios are 100 plus years old. They are not built sustainably. They're full of asbestos there, you know, and so on. So we wanted to be an example of what could be done. <clears throat> And, you know, there's really strong commercial reasons for this as well. I think that's the thing that entrepreneurs need to think about is commercially, this is, this is not just the right decision morally. This is the right decision commercially to do this. You know, government, my prediction is governments around the world are going to continue to ramp up pressure because of what voters want on all forms of business. And if those businesses do not adapt how they work in the spaces that they're operating in, then they will be cut out of contracts. You know, the likes of BBC, Netflix, I do not believe those businesses will continue to operate out of facilities that do not meet certain standards That's in right. the coming years. So uh, you can add that and apply that to any business you're in, any industry you're in. So it's it's the right decision to do it morally, even if it is costing you more on your bottom line. And it's also the right decision long term commercially, in my opinion. So you're thinking around that international aspect as well and, and how, how you can impact that. You've got offices all over the globe. How do you how do you find managing a fully international business, whether that's time zones, location, you might have different projects going on around the world. Just explain to us how you manage to keep that under control. It's knackering. 
no, it's, it is. It's tiring. Um, the first thing is like finding people you trust. If you want to grow an international business, you need to find people that you trust and you need to empower those people uh, to make uh, decisions locally in their own time zone and, and be able to move quickly. That's what made this business good. And it's what will make those businesses great as well. OK. Um, I can't be everywhere all at once. I can't be on every time zone. So that's the critical factor. And that is not easy by any stretch. Um, and that's how we run it. You know, we empower the local teams to to do to do what they do. And you pick great people and you you say, go achieve these objectives and call me if there's a problem and, and call me when it's uh, successful. Got it. Next question now that you will um, have to explain a little bit. So you, you've kind of given me permission to, to touch on this. So before COVID, you made the decision to bring external investors into the business which um, as long as I'm not um, confused with the first time that, that you would have done that and so obviously bringing a sophisticated hopefully uh, investor to run the table. COVID then hits and your your plans go on pause which was not uncommon with many processes and businesses that were looking to raise capital at that particular point in time as people either try to just get a handle on what that new world looked like and also they had to concentrate on their own funds and portfolio businesses etc. I'm quite interested to hear how you as a CEO went from deciding right I'm going to bring external investors into into my baby into something that I've grown you know from, from the bedroom to now you know alongside me around the board table to then something completely out of your control COVID um putting a halt on that so it wasn't anything that the business was doing good or bad it was simply a you know a macro thing that you know obviously that we all went through and then having to refocus on the business and then not be able to pursue that that route just talks us around that that up and down trajectory of emotion and everything else that came with it let alone trying to run the business you know how did you how did you cope with that and how did you get to grips with right i'm going to bring an investor on and then completely flip that and say no i'm going to stick with this path quickly yeah you know we went through a probably a very unusual experience in that we were less than 24 hours away from signing all the documentation we'd completed all of the dd we were doing a private equity deal and um, COVID hit. And then when it came back around to complete the deal, we decided we didn't want to do it. After doing what is the best part of nine months worth of work, you know, to, to bring a deal like the size of our deal together. I mean, to answer your first question, why why do it in the first place? I think in Britain, we are um, we're quite unique from a, a cultural point of view, from a business uh, side of things, in that we're told, entrepreneurs are told quite often, you should sell some you should de-risk you know a friend was telling me about in germany if you go up to a successful business owner in germany and and you say to them oh yeah we're selling out some of our shares the german owner will say why are you sick why would you do that and um i think in america as well whilst not to say that you know there aren't many americans obviously raise investment and sell shares they don't tend to cash out as early as perhaps UK entrepreneurs are advised to do. Um, Those advisors you're talking to, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think we have a culture of being of being less risk averse. I think that's probably the safest way of doing it. And, um, and I think from my point of view, uh, I've just had some um, two children and I was thinking maybe this is a good time to bring a partner in to help also not just to de-risk uh, as the sole shareholder, but to potentially um, help professionalize the business for that as we move into 
as a medium-sized enterprise. You know, it's a very different world running a 20-person or 30-person business to running a 100, 150, 200, 500-person business, uh, or at least that was the perception that I had. And I think, actually, you know, we had great partners. Uh, we had lots of bidders, and it was a very exciting, interesting process to go through, quite stressful for anyone listening to this who's thinking about going through it. I'm sure they'd be aware of that, but it, but it is a stressful, time-consuming process. Um, and I think we did have great partners. And I think just a, you know, it was a very unusual set of circumstances that everyone was faced with. Um, when we, when every, when the dust had settled by the summer and the, the uh, investors were keen to come back to the table to complete the deal, we decided not to do it. Um, and we decided that for a number of reasons, but mostly I think because, you know, the life had moved on and, and maybe, um, uh, our mentality had moved uh, a little bit as well through that process. So it was um, it was a hugely educational uh, thing to go through. Um, you know, you could spend a lot of money on an MBA and it wouldn't give you anywhere near that process of going through such a large deal that, that gets so close to completing. Um, and I remain uh, on good terms with all parties, which is which is great, you know, and, and, and something you can't, you know, it is at the end of the day, just business. Uh, you, know, you know, people are trying to do what's best for, for them and, and you're trying to do what's best for you. Um, and in our case, you know, the business had grown quite a lot in those three months. So that made it and it made it challenging for for the investor to go, oh, wow, we've, you know, have, we've really missed the boat here. Um, and so, you know, sometimes things just don't align. Um, and that you know, and these things happen. So, with the benefit, with the benefit of hindsight, albeit not of the ability of a crystal ball to try and figure out would have been better, would have been worse. How does your, how did your gut feel now in terms of difficult, isn't it? And I suppose you're going to kind of going to go one way with the answer. But how, you, know, th does it feel like it was the right thing to do for the business to actually keep it within its current structure? Obviously, there's advantages to bringing an investor in, but just how would you feel sort of emotionally with it? Well, we. I think obviously it's easier when the business has tripled in size in two years, right? So you're, you know, or tripled in, you know, yeah. The key, the, so it's obviously if if the business had gone off a cliff, then I'd obviously, yeah. uh, you know, feeling like yeah. oh, maybe I, but um, that was the chance, Khan, yeah. Yeah, you know, but we're, but I, I was always confident in the business, even going through it. I had that pang of is this the right thing? I think one of the things that I'll be eternally grateful to the to that group of investors is. The diligence they put us through was so extensive, right? We, I okay. mean, it was to the nth degree, um, and we got tons of incredible information from that process about how the business was structured and ways. It's to helped you look at the business in a different way, potentially. I mean, like, no, of course, yeah. I mean, I had about six hundred pages of of DD to read through. So, you know, and you know, everything from interviewing almost every member of the team extensive interviews with every single client, prospective clients, all of our rivals, like, I mean, the, the full works in a way that no business owner would ever normally have, um, you know, structures around how we should build the board. And we implemented all of this. And you know what, for all the criticism that, you know, consultants get and sometimes PE gets, you know, a lot of those suggestions we've implemented and they were great and they've obviously helped us carry on on our journey. And so a, a massive you know, gratitude on my side um and 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 you know what life is long uh in in some sense and you never know when you're going to come back around to those same people that you 
you know, sat around the table with. So the best thing you can do if you're an entrepreneur, no matter how bad the situation is, you stand up, you shake hands, you brush yourself off and you go, you know, tomorrow is another day. I live to fight another day. And you never know, I might be sitting around this table with you guys doing the best deal ever in a, in a couple of years. So that's the sort of approach I, I, I came away with for it. That's good spirit. Um, talk to us about your leadership style. You're obviously a very passionate individual. Um, you know, you work in a creative space and clearly that's going to be um, part of a personality trait for you. But go on, talk to us about your leadership style. I think, you know, I'm all about a uh, simple idea that I think all great leaders uh, try and I'm trying to emulate is get great people, give them the ability to make decisions, let them uh, be accountable for their actions, uh, reward them well when when success comes um, and help to try and guide whenever you think something might be going wrong. Uh, I've got the people in my management team have all been with me for a, a long time on this journey. Most of them have been there for, for a, almost all of it uh, and they've grown up with the business. And when we brought new people in, I, I, you really need to bring people in who um, who are who on personality are going to fit with that mantra of I'm, I'm happy to be responsible and be accountable. So, for example, someone who's sort of middle management inside of a great big 100,000 person, 200,000 person organization probably wouldn't enjoy the experience of working in this company. Um, they would go, I'm kind of here to kind of keep things moving. I'm not here to be asked, how do I solve this really difficult problem? And I'm going to yeah. take my shoulders. Right. So. It's about finding people who want the the right thing for them. What's the future for the business? How do you, you know, you, we, we touched on the fantastic clients that you've got. You've spoken about the growth that the business has gone on. You've looked at external investment. You've got an international footprint. You've got the studios. Um, you know, you're a well, well-established, well-known, well-thought-of brand. What's next for you in the business? I think... There's a couple of different things that we're we're doing. We obviously have the physical property business, the studios. We're going to expand that. Uh, we're going to take on more space. Uh, want to be the leading operator of film studios uh, uh, in the UK, at least in the next uh, decade. Uh, and that starts from a very small base relative to other uh, studios. But I think there's an opportunity there. I think the way that we're approaching studios is very different to the legacy studios out there the way that we look after our producers when they come through the doors, the way that we think about the design uh, of studio space, very different to other operators. And I think there's great potential there to go and uh, grow that, not just in the UK, uh, but, but around the world. We also have our agency business, the Creative Production Agency, which gr continues to grow. Um, our objective there is to keep growing. We, in the branded uh, content production producers category, um, the top 50 in the UK, we've risen from, I think, ranked in the 40s a couple of years back to now third biggest. And the ambition there is to be the biggest and, and also to um, to continue to challenge the traditional ad agencies. You know, the, the WPPs, uh, even I would include um, Media Monks and, and others. You know, we go up against them regularly and I'm pleased to say regularly beat them. So continue to beat them and, and, and grow. And then uh, the next real exciting element will be our... Um, our original content team. So we're making big investments into uh, creating original content. We obviously own the studios. We have a very large uh, team of people who are producers, editors, animators, directors. So it's a natural step for us to start creating uh, original content because we own the, we're vertically integrated in that we own Any the whole. Any particular genre you think you'll go into first? 
Yeah, um, we're looking at uh, children's TV at the moment. So uh, we've got some great government uh, incentives there and um, we've got great facilities to be able to pull it off. So that's a, a very exciting. Is that because you've got some stakeholders at home that want to see it? <laughs> this, is what, this is what happens when you've got three children under the age of six. <laughs> Quite. You see the good and the bad, don't you, in terms of content? <laughs> exactly. Both, yeah, both online and on television. Um, no, thank you for that. That, that is a good, um, a good insight into the, the future of the business. We always finish the podcast with um, two questions that give an insight into um, into yourself. You've given us a good insight already, to be fair to you. Um, first question, who is your icon? Any walk of life that could be, you know, business, sports, family, whichever you decide. Um, so who's your icon? And then what would you say to Ryan in 2009 when he's sitting in his bedroom thinking around that? £15,000. He thinks he's made it then, to be fair, so it'd be difficult to see what you'd say to him. But what would you tell your younger self, um, sort of knowing what you know now and those ups and downs? So your icon and then and Ryan in 2009. I think from an icon point of view, Story of Disney is really my, um, yeah. is the one that I look to to go, you know, it's, it's just amazing. And I actually, obviously Walt Disney himself, but actually the story the, the guy who's had the biggest impact, I think, over the last three or four years in terms of the way of thinking is Bob Iger. I know he, he's obviously returned to Disney in the last few months, but um, I was introduced to Bob Iger through his book, uh, Ride of a Lifetime, which yeah, I think yeah. 2019, maybe, or 2020. So you like, mentioned the book, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a phenomenal book and it got me to to read. Obviously, I love Disney as well, like Disney. And, and so reading about his approach as a leader, his vision, how he turned around Disney, you know, from from a pretty poor position to to where it is today. Uh, obviously, he's coming back. So they always say, you know, never go back. They say that about football managers, don't they? But we'll so we'll see how that goes. But I think his story is an from an, as an iconic business leader and a visionary. If you haven't read about him and you haven't looked him up, uh, he's someone I'd really admire and I think is worth your time to look up. Um, I think yeah, t t talking to 2009 Ryan and say well. 15 grand won't last that long, especially when you've got to make a film with it. Um, yeah, I think it would be um, trust your trust your instincts. I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I haven't had loads of periods of like major doubt. You know, I haven't got that story of, oh, God, I had imposter syndrome and I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, there have been moments where you're going, I'm going to throw the towel in, like when the money was running out. Right the days off you. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think it's, you know, trust your instincts, go go for it. And um, you're doing a job that you are extremely lucky to do. You make pretty pictures come to life. It's basically the job you dreamed of doing your entire childhood. You've always wanted to run a business as well. So you basically fuse together storytelling, making pictures come to life into a, a highly uh, enjoyable living. And, you know, you're going to spend near, m the overwhelming majority of your life working, right? The overwhelming majority of your heartbeats are going to be spent doing some kind of job. So, and for the vast majority of people, they 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 don't get uh, to necessarily do something. Those heartbeats aren't always spent doing something they love with an, a massive passion. So I'm extremely gr grateful for that. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, it would. That would be the. It's that message. It's just like you've you you're going to have a great time. You're going to enjoy it. You're very lucky. Be grateful. Be gracious. Um, 
and just enjoy every second of it because um yeah it will go it goes by very quickly it's interesting that we we did one recently uh one of these podcasts and CEO that we that we that we spoke to, the, you know, his answer to that was something along the lines of, you know, when you're 60, don't have, you know, the rain going down the back of your neck, thinking around what 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 you could have done or not enjoying in your life. So the feedback to younger Ryan would have been, what, that 15 grand's going to go pretty quickly, son. And for God's sake, don't ignore that Bacardi email or that or that Bacardi phone call. Just for God's sake, pick that one up. <laughs> yeah, make sure that you answer that phone call, uh, the Bacardi job, because you're going to have an awesome time the next 40. 40- now, it's not been all ups. There's ups and downs, right? But it's it's more ups and downs. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, enjoy it. Enjoy every second. Tom, Ryan, um, that was it. You've um, survived. Thank you very much for talking to us on the Founder and Chief podcast. Brilliant. Well, thank you for having me again, Paul. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up very soon. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.